0: Welcome to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, Snacks edition, featuring Michael Fernando and Josh Hurwitz. Today, we will be talking about chemotherapy-induced nausea, one of those troublesome and ongoing challenges when it comes to treatment, not just in chemotherapy, but all of our treatment
1: options. It is the stereotypical side effect of chemotherapy, isn't it, Josh? When people think chemotherapy, they think poison, but the reason they think poison is often this image, this very evocative image of chemotherapy causing nausea. I guess it's also important to note that it's not just chemotherapy, but it is something that is most associated with chemotherapy.
0: And I think you're right. You've picked up that point, Michael. Most of the drugs and most of the classes of treatment we use cause some form of chemotherapy. I'm talking about eutyrosine kinase inhibitors. Also about the antibody drug conjugates and a number of other sort of subclasses that we use.
1: But evidently chemotherapy is the, uh, the poster child for this. It very much is. But why, Josh, I ask you, why is this the case? Why does chemotherapy cause so much nausea? The thing is is that I think it affects
0: our vomiting centre. And that's probably the reason why. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. I mean so the Josh. Most- So Josh wasn't actually asking uh, why, because he's got the script in front of it.
0: Yeah, well, look, it's all to do with the medulla oblongata. And while I'm not the one that's (laughs) going to be talking about pathophysiology today, I will briefly introduce it. But the vomiting center is an integration of the peripheral and central inputs of our nervous system. And our chemotherapy essentially impacts that. But Michael, why don't you go through it in a bit more detail for our lovely listeners?
1: I will, Josh, with great enthusiasm. More enthusiasm than anyone has a right to be when talking about nausea.
0: This makes me nauseous. (laughs) Uh,
1: uh, I was waiting for that one. Thank you. Um, So, as Josh said, the inputs from nausea come from both the peripheral and central nervous system. So, there are two main areas that can contribute to one sensation of nausea and therefore the impetus to vomit. The first is the vomiting centre, which is located in the medulla oblongata. There is also the abdominal vagal afferent fibres that can be triggered by stimulation such as pharyngeal stimulation or gastric or duodenal distension. Um, and these feed back into the uh, vomiting centre. But there, there is also the central emesis pathway, which comes from the brain where the vomiting center receives direct cholinergic and histi- histaminic I think I'm pronouncing that right input to induce vomiting in response to pain, vestibular symptoms or emotional factors. So, if you're going to break it down, there's the stomach vomiting but also the brain vomiting. The stomach vomiting is after you eat something and you feel like you need to vomit. So the brain pathway is when you are nervous about a big job interview or a date or a presentation and you feel like you need to vomit
0: and Michael why do we care so much about these pathways
1: and the pathophysiology well, like anything in oncology, Josh, I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> Knowing the pathway allows us to see how chemotherapy actually disrupts or stimulates that pathway and therefore allows us to identify targets with which our drugs can ameliorate the symptoms. So how does chemotherapy actually cause nausea and vomiting? Well, they can activate neurotransmitter receptors to stimulate the vagal afferents. Uh, and this normally is activated within 24 hours of chemotherapy. The abdominal pathway is normally activated by free radicals generated from chemotherapeutic agents, so this is the poison effect coming in, where they, the chemotherapy damages perfectly good cells as well as cancer cells, generates free radicals which stimulate uh, enterochromaffin cells in the GI tract to release serotonin, and this leads to a bit of a cascade. And cascade is a word that will give any uh, medical student PTSD, but don't worry, this isn't the coagulation cascade. So, because serotonin subsequently stimulates the uh, abdominal afferent vagal fibers that we talked about before as part of the peripheral emesis part of pathway and activates the emetic response via the vomiting center. Chemotherapy drugs can also release substance P in both the central and peripheral nervous system, revolving in. NK1, that's neurokinin-1, um, which, as you will see, is one of the uh, targeted uh, targets of our anti-emetic agents, which results in NK1-mediated vomiting.
0: That's a pretty good summary, Michael. And I think one thing to highlight is that not all chemotherapy agents are made equal, meaning not all of them have the same emetogenicity. Some have more, some have less. And we categorize it really by, it's CINV, which stands for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and we classify it as minimal, low, moderate, and high. High is greater than 90%, minimal is less than 10%, and low and moderate are somewhere in
1: between. And Josh, can you rattle off some examples of uh, high, moderate, low, and minimal chemotherapies to illustrate your point?
0: Given that this is a 15-minute or less segment, I can rattle off a few, but not all of them. So the ones that you would think of, anthracyclines and cyclophosphamide combinations, carboplatin and cisplatin are those high emetogenic chemotherapies. We use them in head and neck, use them in breast cancer, and doxorubicin as well. The moderate ones we'll be thinking of are as a cytodine, we don't really use that. But again, lower-dose carboplatin can also influence it and lower-dose cyclophosphamide as well. You might be seeing a uh, pattern here and you've got epirubicin, isophosphamide, which is one of those older drugs as well, and temazole might use in GBM cancers. Other ones to talk about that a low I think I might just move on to low, Michael. Fluorouracil, it causes the diarrhea, but not so much the nausea. Etoposide, gemcitabine, mitomycin, when it comes to, I guess, bladder, all the nibs here, so those pesky TKIs uh, sit in the low emetogenicity, which is 10 to 30%, and pazoponib, and cenitinib and regorafenib, and at the, you know, the, the list goes on, right, Mikey? But essentially, those ones say lo- low, but again, I would say low to moderate uh, with some of those TKIs. And don't forget, NAB-Paclitaxel. I'm going to stop, but you get the deal, right? <laughs> the really intense ones are the cisplatins and the carboplatins and the anthracycline regimens that you need to worry your patients about. And I think everything else probably sits somewhere in between.
1: That's very fair. And I think you've highlighted the most commonly used uh, agents that are the real troublemakers in terms of nausea and vomiting.
0: That's it. And Mikey, do they all come on at the same time? Does every one of them cause acute or are some of them more a little bit, I guess, slower in their uptake of nausea and vomiting?
1: No, there can definitely be a delay in onset. And I know, Josh, you would have seen this. I've seen this a lo- a number of times, how patients will say that they're okay for a day or two after chemotherapy, and then it comes along day three, day five, day seven for the first week. So... By definition, delayed CINV, delayed chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting, occurs 24 hours to five days after chemotherapy. And again, this is predominantly mediated by substance P binding to NK1 receptors. So, this is the central pathway. It occurs in uh, 20 to 50% of patients who have antiemetic prophylaxis with their chemotherapy. This is not to be confused with anticipatory. CINV, which occurs even before chemotherapy has even started because patients have had bad uh, experiences with previous chemotherapy, so their body is almost preemptively trying to expel the toxins. And Josh, I guess there's a whole lot of agents that we can use for both prevention and management of chemotherapy. Let's be honest, For any of our listeners who have ever worked in day oncology, that's probably a good 30 to 50% of your job. So as we sort of race to a conclusion on this 15-minute episode, what are some of the strategies that we can impart to our listeners about tackling nausea and vomiting in the chemotherapy space?
0: I think it's about tailoring the treatment to fit the patient because not all of our antiemetics are equal and not everyone responds to the same antiemetic. Would you agree?
1: I would, definitely.
0: Okay, cool. We're on, we're on the same page. So I guess the one of the first classes we can look at is the five HT3 receptor antagonists. These are the pesky serotonin, uh, serotonin, which is in that pathway we spoke about, but it's an inhibitor. And there are quite a number of these that can that can inhibit it. So things we're thinking of uh, include ondansetron, uh, delazotron, and gonazotron uh, would probably be the first generation. And then you've got some second generation ones as well, Michael. Mostly we would use ondansetron. I think that's probably pretty fair to say. But again, we often use, Michael, we often also very much use metoclopramide, which is actually an inhibitor of the D2 receptors, um, and presynaptic excitatory 5-HT4 receptors. So I think it works on both serano- serotonin and dopamine receptors. That's generally our baseline, I think, from our oral equivalent. And then we move on to the pure serotonin, which includes ondansetron as the second line. Things to think about. So Maxilon or does core is a prokinetic, so it helps your bowels move, while ondansetron is a constipatory drug. So you've got to warn your patients about that.
1: That is a major issue frequently, particularly for people who need high doses of ondansetron or use multiple serotonin, anti-serotonergic agents, is constipation. So you've got to be really, uh, really aware of people getting constipated as a result of all of the agents we're getting them.
0: That's exactly it. And you, when we talk about the serotonin inhibitors, with the second class, they also use sort of intravenous uh, inhibitors and things I'm going to mention now include palinazotron, uh, which is one that's used quite commonly in the chemo unit. It's given intravenously uh, to try and reduce the effects of um, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Works very well, does cause a heap of constipation generally for about four days, and then it resolves so your patients won't have any nausea or any diarrhea for the first four days of their treatment, and then it all comes on.
1: Yes, and that is a, that is a significant problem with, um, with a lot of the prophylaxis, the anti-nausea prophylaxis that we give, because this is another thing. We do try our best to prevent the onset of nausea, but frequently what we really achieve is just a delay. So even though people get prophylaxis, and this is frequently with a combination of uh, antiseratonergics with palonosetron, as well as a um, NK1 inhibitor, such as Natupatant. The combination brand name is Akinzio, which most people will have used, that aims to block both the peripheral and central um, vomiting pathways. But frequently, in addition to constipation, all that achieves is a bit of a delay in patient's onset of nausea. Mikey, what are some of the other NK1 receptor antagonists you know of? So the other one that I know of, and the reason I know it is because I deal with a lot of head and neck patients who can't swallow. But um, which is given in an intravenous formulation, so for people who need akinzio but can't swallow, we frequently give them IV fosaprepitant. And I don't think Josh, I've ever seen NK1 inhibitors given by themselves. Usually, or almost always, they're given in combination with an antiserotonergic to really give that double hit of uh, anti, anti-emetic activity.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think I've ever seen it individually. But don't worry, guys. You might be thinking, I've already gone through all these medications. My patient is still not tolerating. Let's talk about what else you can do. And the the elephant in the room, or I guess the the big hitter, is steroids, corticosteroids. Uh, your friend, usually we don't use it, or we, we use it as kind of a... St- a treatment schedule. So they might have it the day before treatment, the day of treatment, and the day after treatment. And while the exact anti-emetic mechanism of action of corticosteroids is unknown, the hypothesis is that it directs action on the NTS and interacts with the serotonin and neurokinin receptors. So the theory is that it works on both these receptors, but it's not mostly proven. So if you've got ongoing issues with your existing anti-emetic regimen, please look at steroids. Make sure you monitor their sugars, monitor them for weight gain and epigastric discomfort or hiccups. So pantoprazole is your friend or any PPI is your friend when giving longest courses of steroids.
1: That's very important, Josh. And also if you're using long courses of steroids, don't forget PJP prophylaxis. That's it. And a high
0: dose as well.
1: High dose, yeah, there are guidelines on what the threshold of PJP prophylaxis is. Another anti-emetic agent that we use more frequently than you might think is alanzapine. Josh, I don't know about you, but in my centre we actually use it as part of our protocol for patients receiving high-dose cisplatin chemotherapy. So patients actually get alanzapine regardless of their previous emetic experience because it is a very potent anti-dopaminergic and anti-serotonergic agents so it is a very strong anti-emetic that can be used for acute delayed and breakthrough uh, chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting so that's something to keep in the back of your mind particularly if you're doubling up on on different anti-emetic types and so you're worried about cumulative toxicity if you're combining for example uh, and ondansetron. Yeah,
0: I do use it a fair bit, but we never really seem to use it first line. It's also very good for people who have food-induced nausea. So they're fine during the day, they're going to go eat something, and all of a sudden... The, the nausea switches on and they can't eat anything. So you can use it for that. Again, can cause drowsiness as it's an antipsychotic at high doses. So you've got to watch out for that. Other potential drugs, Michael, includes cyclozine. We haven't mentioned that one, but that's a, I'm a huge fan of this. I use, I've i used it a lot when I've worked in intensive care units across Australia. But the mechanism is, it's not 100% known, but it does block the histamine H1 receptor and dopamine D2. In Australia, this is an over-the-counter medication you can get a pack of six from your local friendly pharmacist. Um, and that's something to also consider if you don't want the ongoing sleepiness that olanzapine might
1: cause. And I guess the last thing we should mention as well is that it is important to actually think about the potential underlying cause of the patient's nausea. We mentioned very briefly about anticipatory nausea, and this is something that for anyone who has experienced it will know, if It doesn't really matter how many antiemetic agents you throw at a case of anticipatory nausea, it's going to be very difficult to bring under control. So anxiolytic agents such as benzodiazepines, lorazepam, diazepam, uh, can be very effective in patients with anticipatory nausea because it is trying to treat the underlying cause of that sensation, which is a patient's... Unconscious anxiety related to their treatment. So if you are having problems with refractory nausea, have a think about actually when the nausea comes on in relation to their treatment. Because if it comes on before they've even had the uh, the needle put in for the infusion or if they've, before they've even popped their tablet, consider anticipatory nausea and consider benzodiazepines as well.
0: That's it. And thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Oncosnacks Nausea. We hope you enjoyed this and uh, we'll see you next week.
1: See you next week for the first in what will probably be many episodes uh, related to immune-mediated side effects. So we'll see you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.